Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship today. You know, this year at First Baptist Arlington, we have been in this year-long conversation, and uh, we have entitled it, Why Does It Matter? And throughout the year, we've explored various facets of that question. For the fall, our question is this, the church, why does it matter? And we have spent this entire fall already evaluating the answer to that question. Why does the church matter? And we've talked a little bit about who the church really is. And, you know, I've shared this brief um, synopsis summary statement about the church with you already. And I would put it like this. The church is a purposeful community of gathered believers following the Jesus way together. That really is who we are. And so with that said, I want us to continue our conversation this morning. So if you have your copy of the New Testament, Acts 2 is where our text is found. And we have been looking at this very text for the last few weeks. Um, this summary statement, this is Luke's first time to stop and give us this brief synopsis. Here's who the church is, if you will. Here's what they were doing at the very beginning. And so right after Pentecost, these folks who had accepted Christ, been baptized as believers, here's what Luke says they did as a summary, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As I said, we began this conversation together at the beginning of the fall. And we asked the question, what are the distinguishing marks of the church? What is it about the church? There are some great organizations in our society, but what is it about the church? What, what distinguishes the church? So that's really what we've been talking about, as well as what we believe is unique about our church. So from the big C perspective, we've talked about purpose, that the, these early believers um, they were purposeful people. Our church has that sense of purpose. We also talked about already the fact that these are believers. The early church was comprised of people who had put their faith in Jesus. And so it was a believer's church. And the church was committed to spiritual formation. Our church is committed to spiritual formation. I, uh, I remember years ago, I was at a conference out in Colorado with a group of pastors from all over America. And our church was, at, at least in that conference, we were the only Sunday school church represented. Do you know what I mean by that? In other words, they all, all these other churches that were there had a different way of doing spiritual formation. And we showed photos of our campus. And when I showed the photos of our campus, they asked me, Wiles, what do you do with those buildings? It's like a college campus. And I said, well, we have Bible study. We have Sunday school every Sunday morning. And they said, one of the pastors said, for grown-ups? 
yes, in other words, not just children. We, we have classrooms we, because for us, one piece of spiritual formation, it's not the only piece, but one piece is instructional. And we do that together on Sunday mornings in small groups all over our campus. So we're committed to spiritual formation. The early church was committed to fellowship, community. We talked about that already. Last Sunday morning, we talked about worship. The church was committed to worship. Today, I want us to talk about service. So the early church was devoted to service and ministry. In fact, if you just look back at this text, um, look at verse 44 of Acts 2, if you still have your Bible open. Luke says the believers were together. They, they shared things in common. They sold property. They sold possessions. They gave to anyone who had need. Now, a couple of pages over in Acts, Acts chapter 4, verse 32, Luke stops again and gives another summary. And he says in verse 32 of Acts 4, these believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed their possessions were theirs. They shared everything they had. In verse 34, he says there were no needy people among them. In other words, they ministered to each other. They took care of each other. They shared with each other. As a matter of fact, the very first church conflict is recorded in Acts 6. And you remember what it was about? It was about ministry. How do you minister to the widows in the church? Those who spoke Greek, those who spoke Aramaic or a version of Hebrew. But the point is, they were ministering to each other. They were serving each other. And then when you keep reading the New Testament, Paul talks about this very thing. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul outlines all these different gifts where Paul says, you've been given a gift. Well, why have you been given a gift? So that you can brag about how gifted you are, right? Um, so that you can prove to everybody how gifted you are. No, you're given a gift to serve the body. And Paul says, we've all been gifted. Romans 12, Paul tells the very same thing. You've been gifted, you're supposed to serve. The ethical demands of the New Testament, they are all about ministry and service and hospitality, charity, benevolence, all that's a part of the life of the early church. So this first church, the early church, was committed to service and ministry. Well, we're 2,000 years removed from that. And this is the first church. What's happened in the life of the church over the last 2,000 years? What, what's taken place? Well, there's no way for me to sum all that up this morning, but here's one of the things I would point out to you. God's people are servants. And that is just chronicled throughout Christian history. I want you to think about it. That first group of believers gathered in Jerusalem who were following Jesus, there were 120 of them, the Bible says, and the Spirit of God fell upon them. They were gathered together somewhat fearful for their lives and the spirit of God fell on them and they experienced this amazing renewal, if you will, and they began to proclaim the gospel. So how did 120 Jews, which that's what they all were, how did 120 Jews, this very small group of people, all of a sudden basically envelop the entire world? How did Christianity grow from just a handful of people, if you compare them to the rest of the world, to actually making its way across the entire world and touching every country 
and having such profound influence and impact on civilization. How did that happen? Well, I would tell y'all that that story has been chronicled by many historians and scholars. Many of y'all know that my PhD is in church history, so I've spent a lot of time studying the history of Christianity. I I would recommend a couple of books to if you want to read about that. Probably the simplest book to read is called The Rise of Christianity. It's written by Rodney Stark. At the end of his life, he was a research professor at Baylor. And in that somewhat small volume, The Rise of Christianity, he explains just what happened because, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's an incredible story. And basically, when you study the history of Christianity, you have to somehow account for the collapse of paganism and the arise of Christianity. Another book I'd recommend to you is Why We're All Romans by Carl Richard. That's also a book that documents kind of what happened in Christianity. But it's a fascinating reality, y'all. I mean, you think about how pervasive paganism was, the incredible spread of Christianity. It's a remarkable story. How did it happen? Why did it happen? Now, if you want to look at it simplistically, you could say, well, it's the providence of God. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, I would, I would give you that. I would say I agree with that. But as an historian, you want to look for realities that account for those things in real people's lives. So how did it happen? Well, I want you to think about the first century. The church was not birthed in a vacuum. The church was birthed at a particular place in time, at a particular place, uh, a particular place in time. And so they are in Jerusalem. Now I want you to think about first century Jerusalem. Israel at the time was characterized by a great deal of both political and religious tension. As a matter of fact, if you study the history of Israel, even to this day, that piece of real estate on planet Earth has often been at the center of religious and political tension. True? We have been reminded of that this weekend, haven't we? Emotions run high in that little piece of property on planet Earth. People have religious claims to it. They have strong feelings about it. They have religious convictions about it. Many of them have political aspirations about it. And so it's always been a contested place. It was that way in the first century. Israel was dominated by Judaism. But if you were to look at a map of the Roman Empire, what you would notice is in the first century, Israel is just a tiny dot on the backwater side of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was massive. Israel's just this small spot. The Roman Empire was not dominated by Judaism, to say the least. Just Israel was. And the Roman Empire was dominated by paganism. And so Christianity, in terms of geography, is birthed in Israel. But in terms of the reality and religious climate of the day, it was birthed at the height of paganism. Well, what was paganism in the ancient world? When you research it, here's what you discover about the ancient religions, excluding Judaism. The pagan religions were polytheistic. They had numerous gods and goddesses. And secondly, the gods and goddesses 
of pagan religions often acted like spoiled aristocratic humans. In other words, they were characterized by the very same things that plague humanity. They were jealous of each other. They got angry with each other. They exacted revenge on one another. They, they behaved like superhumans, but humans nonetheless. And not only that, the religion of the ancient world was highly ritualistic and it was completely controlled by the priests. By the time you get to the first century, here's what's happening though, and most researchers agree with this. There was a certain spiritual emptiness though in the ancient world that wasn't satisfied by pagan religions. Pagan religions are primarily rooted in philosophy and ritual not warm-hearted personal faith. And so the dominating ethos of the pagan world in the first century was somewhat empty and philosophically rooted. And so people were highly superstitious. Now into that milieu, are y'all still with me? Okay, into that milieu is birthed Christianity. Now think about Christianity. It is strictly monotheistic, inherited from Judaism. Christians believe in one God. Now, we believe in a Trinitarian God who's revealed himself in three persons, but he is one God all the same. Christians began to preach and teach about the immortality of the soul. In other words, there is more to life than just what's experienced on planet Earth. Christians also promoted the equality of all human beings. So all the social barriers that existed out in the world, once you came into the church, they were dissolved. Men and women, rich and poor, slave and free, all worshiped together in these homes and in these gatherings. There were no divisions among them. They also elevated the role of women. Women were allowed to participate in worship, in leadership, they were allowed to participate in generosity and charitable giving. The Bible gives testimony to that in the New Testament. Christians very early on began to soften the views of the Roman Empire with regards to slavery. And pagan religion was rooted in philosophy. Christianity is actually rooted in a person, Jesus. And Christians were willing to suffer. They were willing to be punished. They were willing to be persecuted for their faith. And that was incredibly, strikingly different than pagans. As a matter of fact, you may remember when the famous fire in Rome occurred, Nero blamed it on the Christians, this new sect, as he called it. And so he took great delight in persecuting the early Christians in Rome. As a matter of fact, after the fire of Rome, he decided to let Christians become, as he called it, the light of the world. And so he would throw these huge parties and he would have Christians burned at the stake at those parties and he would say, they wanna be the light of the world, let them be the light of our parties. And Christians were martyred for their faith. Well, what was interesting was many of the leaders in the Roman Empire thought that would harden the view of pagans toward Christians, but actually the opposite result occurred. People began to soften in their view toward Christians. They began to wonder, why are you willing to be persecuted for your faith? We're not. Why would these people die just for their religion, we wouldn't. And so something happened in the ancient world with regard to their view of Christians. The Christians also had a beautiful document, the New Testament, which is a powerful message. 
a consistent message about who God is and what he asks of us. And so over time, it began to be circulated. But most of these scholars, when they study Christianity and its growth, they all point to one common factor. It was a powerful force operative in the lives of Christians that the pagans received, noticed, and desired. And that powerful force, love. Christians loved. They loved each other, but they loved their neighbors. And Christians throughout antiquity, as you make your way through the pagan era, after Christ, 200 years, 300 years, Christianity starts spreading across the eastern part of the empire primarily. It makes its way into the west, 300, 400. Christians loved and it puzzled the pagans because Christians loved everybody. They loved the pagans. They took care of their neighbors. Christians took care of the poor. They had benevolence offerings where they actually received funds to care for the poor. Children that were abandoned by the Romans and the Greeks and many pagans, Christians would take those children in and rear them as their own. As these massive disease, diseases spread in these major metropolitan areas throughout the Roman Empire, we have documentation of where Christians would actually go out into the street and take the people who had been abandoned by their families and take them into their homes at great risk, at great peril to themselves and care for them and love them. And the powerful force of love transformed society and paganism disappeared and Christianity flourished on the backs of the love of these Christians. Do you know what Christians invented? Do you know in the ancient world, the only people who received medical care were folks in the military and the royal families. No one else received medical care. Guess what Christians started? Hospitals. They began to make nursing as a calling from God, a noble profession. And they began to care for strangers as it was put in those days. People marveled that Christians would take care of anybody. It didn't matter who they were or what their lot in life might be. And so eventually, what happens is we can chronicle the demise of paganism and the rise of Christianity. And Christians lived in community with each other. They extended their love beyond their own families. As a matter of fact, Christians called non-family members brothers and sisters. And they began to engage in acts of mercy and justice and humility. And so when you look at the history of our world and you try to tell the story of Western civilization and you want to study social order and the growth of charity and benevolence, throughout history, you cannot tell that story without telling the story of Christianity because all of that is rooted in Christian ideals, doctrine, and practice. In other words, whatever you want to say about the church, however you want to tell that story, you have to tell this part of the story. God's people historically are servants. And that service, that desire to love, that heeding the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, has had as much of an impact in the development of Western society than any other one factor we can point to. It's absolutely amazing. And I would say, praise God. That's what I would say. Thank you, Christians, for serving examples for us. Now, with that said, what about our church? 
You know, if you belong to this church, you, you actually are in a local body of believers known as First Baptist Arlington. Here's what I'd say about our church. We have an incredible legacy of service. And I want to share it with you this morning, not boastfully, but just as a matter of fact. Um, you know, some of you have been in this church a long time. Um, you know, in the first service, we had many people in that first service who've been a part of this church for over 50 years. We have some of you long-standing veterans of First Baptist Arlington here in this service. Some of you, some of you may be newer to First Baptist Arlington. Here's what I want you to know. This church has been led historically by humble servant leaders. And it has just been, that attitude of service and humility is just woven into the fabric, into the DNA of First Baptist Arlington. It just is who this church is and always has been. This church has put feet to the gospel in Arlington for over 152 years. All the way back in the very beginning, 1871 is when our church was founded, three miles south from here in a little community known as Johnson Station. But do you know, five years into that life as a church, what the church discovered was the community was actually going to be three miles north. It was not really going to be built around a stagecoach stop. It was going to be built around a railroad stop. And the rail was being put in five, uh, three miles north. And so the church, as an act of service, moved to where they thought the new community would be. And in, it was in 1876. Well, you know, in 1876, three miles was three miles. <clears throat> Particularly when you walked everywhere you went. And it was a decision to serve this new community because they wanted to be at the heart of a new community. It was all rooted in a desire to serve and so this church has actually been serving this community longer than there has been this community. We're the oldest church in Arlington. We're the first church that was established in this community. And when I think about just how this church has served through the years, it's a powerful story. We planted churches all over this town. Every Baptist church save one that I know of in the city of Arlington is somehow connected to First Baptist Arlington. It's an amazing story. This church... You know, even when this church built this building, this building was built in 1959 and is still called the new sanctuary by some of our veterans at our church <clears throat> because our old sanctuary was down here on the corner. And even when this building was built, Dr. East was our pastor at the time, and Dr. East led this church to build this building and here's what he asked the church to do. He said, I want us to go easy on any kind of Christian iconography in this room because in 1959, believe it or not, this was the largest public space in the city of Arlington. And Dr. East said, I want non-Christians to feel comfortable having events in this building. I don't want to overwhelm them with iconography. We can give them the witness ourselves. And so consequently, this building was used by the community. Graduation ceremonies for UT Arlington, high school graduations, Believe it or not, we even had a movie projector up in the balcony and we had the first screen. We had a screen before screens were cool uh, in churches. Why was that done? It was an act of service to the city of Arlington because that's who this church historically has been. 
1971, a group of women in our church came to the pastor and said, you know, we have people moving here from all over the world now, and they seem to have a hard time finding their way in America. We need to start a ministry for them, internationals. We need to help them learn our language, our customs, find their way in our society. And so in 1971, we started a ministry that we still have called International Friends where we befriended people who've moved here from all over the world, and we've been doing that now all these years. In 1978, Dr. Wade started the very first ministry to abused women and children in this community, and our church established a shelter. At that time, some thought at great risk, but it has been functioning ever since. It's now one of the largest women's shelters in Texas, all started by the benevolent spirit and heart of our church. 1986, actually it goes back to 1970. 1970, Bob Houston came to Dr. East and said, do you realize how many people live in apartments in Arlington? And in 1970, Bob started a ministry in the apartment complexes here in Arlington, plowing the ground, sowing the seed. And then finally, years later in 1986, Dr. Wade decided to start a ministry for people, primarily living in apartment complexes and taking the church to them. And we didn't know what to call it. And so they said simply, we'll just, until we come up with a better name, we'll just call it Mission Arlington. And it's been known as that ever since. And our church is still the largest supporter of that ministry, providing ministry in our apartment complexes across our city and benevolence and social expressions of the gospel in this community. 1990, our church decided we need to do something about these families who needed care for their children during the week. And so we started a weekday ministry called our Child Development Center. It's open to this day. I have one granddaughter who's graduated from there, and I have another one in that program right now. We started a Christian counseling center on our property years ago so that people in our city who are struggling with real needs, real challenges, could have competent therapy caring for them from a Christian perspective. And we now have full-time counselors on our staff here in our building, rather, through a, a new ministry that we uh, uh, engage with now called the Center for Integrative Psychology. And uh, we're grateful for the role that they're uh, playing in the life of our church. Um, we have many people in our community that are sexually broken, looking for help. And so our church now is a part of Living Hope. And we host Living Hope on our campus. Ricky Shillette leads that ministry. He's on our staff. Our 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 service extends overseas. We don't just care for people in Arlington. We're caring for people all over the world. You know, our, our church has been a part of providing food for people in West Africa. In fact, during a very severe famine, your church provided the funds to keep people actually alive in this last year. Hundreds of families every day had food because of your benevolence. We have ministry to orphans in Sierra Leone. Most of you know that through an orphan sponsorship program at Restore Hope. And you know, even our, our cafe here on our campus, every time you buy a cup of coffee or one of the drinks in that cafe, the first dollar and 23 cents goes to our orphan ministry and it provides a good day for an orphan in Sierra Leone, West Africa. You know why all of that is true? This church, if you don't know it and you're new here, when you join this church, you are joining a long legacy of service and caring for other people. That's who this church is. And that's who we're going to continue to be. 
We celebrate God's work. And I want you to think about it, y'all. That's, those are words about our corporate life. What about all the individuals in our church? Think about the people who've made up First Baptist Arlington and who all they are and who all you are and where we all go and how we're connected to this culture. I mean, think about it through the years. Members of First Baptist Arlington, they have been teachers and community leaders and mayors and council members and school board members and superintendents, newspaper editors, doctors, moms and dads and coaches and police officers and missionaries and business owners and firefighters and just pick something in this town and I promise you, you will find First Baptist Arlington people right in the middle of it because this church is just filled with servants. And I would tell you, as the pastor of this church, it's very humbling to be the shepherd of these people and to stand in the line of legacy of service we have in this community. We stand on the shoulders of some really sweet, humble, selfless people. Don't we? Aren't we grateful for that? Well, let's don't lose that. That's who we are. That means you and I have got to take service seriously. Well, we have to find our way. So let me ask you, have you found your way in service and ministry? Let me remind you of something I mentioned to y'all a couple of Sundays ago. The one and others. Remember? There are 59 of them in the New Testament. 59 one another's. Love one another. Consider one another. Be devoted to one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be patient with one another. Accept one another. Care for one another. Submit to one another. I mean, 59 times we're basically told to serve one another. So you personally are called to serve. Now, let me tell you about service. I get it. It's just not glamorous. Okay? And if you think it's glamorous, try it and see how it feels when somebody treats you like a servant. It's just not glamorous. Um, Shane Claiborne famously said, everybody wants a revolution, but nobody wants to do the dishes. But you know what? Somebody's got to do the dishes. Um, I know service is hard. You have to fight our selfishness. And that's always hard. Uh, you know, this mom was preparing camp pancakes for her two boys. You've heard this story. And six years old and four years old. And the two boys, while she's making the pancakes, she had her back to them. And they were arguing over who was going to get the first pancake. And the older brother said, well, obviously, I will get it. I'm the older brother. And the younger brother said, well, I'm going to get it because I'm mom's favorite. So they had this little snit back and forth. Finally, the mom turned around and said, if Jesus were here, I believe Jesus would say, my brother can have the first pancake. She turned back around and the older brother looked at the younger brother and said, okay, you be Jesus. <laughs> well, <laughs> that is how it is, isn't it? Um... Dan Meyer is a, a pastor. Sometimes I like to read his sermons. He says he has a friend who told him one time, because of Christ, I have retired from myself. In other words, he was telling his pastor, I've spent most of my life about me, and then I met Jesus, and I've retired from me. Interesting. Um. Kevin Miller is a pastor in Chicago and he has this somewhat well-known sermon called The Two Basins. And it's, a, it's an Easter sermon. 
and he compares the two basins of Easter. He talks about the basin of Pontius Pilate, covered in gold, carried by a servant. And you know the story, Pontius Pilate publicly, ceremoniously uses that basin of power. And he washes his hands and somewhat absolves himself from the death of Jesus. But Kevin Miller says there's another basin in that story. It was, it was a private basin of a servant that Jesus used. And he took it and he cleaned the feet of his disciples. And Miller says, if we're not careful, the church can be more enamored with the basin of power than the basin of service. How about you? Every day, students of UTA, passers-by, walk right by this little courtyard out here, and we have a statue of Jesus. It's called the Divine Servant. And what's he doing? Washing the feet of Simon Peter. You see, it turns out that the basin of service is the real basin of power. And so I wonder if you have found that place to serve yourself. What I've learned about servanthood, it's not a one and done kind of thing. It's just a lifestyle <laughs> um, for a Christian. This is just who we become. I don't know if you heard this story or not, but in January of this year, Archana Murray Bartlett, she accomplished an incredible feat, made it to the Guinness Book of World Records. I've got a photo of her. She's an Australian. She was burdened about her country because so many animals become extinct in Australia. And so she decided to embark on a fundraiser to raise money and awareness about the animals in Australia. So she ran a marathon every day for 150 consecutive days. She started on the southern end of Australia and she literally ran across her entire country in 150 days. And she ran 26.2 miles every day for 150 days straight. Made it into the Guinness Book of World Records. I don't know about y'all. I'd like to believe over 150 days I might run one marathon if you put them all together cumulatively. But to run one every day for 150 days straight. Um, when I read that story, I thought about us, though. To me, servanthood's like that. It's not a 100-yard dash. You do every once in a while and feel good about yourself. Servanthood is actually your life. <laughs> it's just every day. That's just what we do. We serve. We find ways to serve. We're in it for the long haul. And here's what I've discovered about it. You find great meaning in service. You get to use your giftedness in service. You get to bless others. You actually extend the kingdom of God. And so I hope you have found where you are to serve. You know what I've learned about service? It changes over time. You have seasons in your life where you serve this way, and then another season you serve that way. It's okay. Just allow God to use you. And as we serve, we become that blessing because here at our church, what we like to say is blessed people, bless people. That's who we are. May it be so. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we, we're grateful for the calling you place on our lives, the invitation to be servants and find places of service. Lord, I, I just pray you'll help us do just that. And that we'll realize the giftedness that we have that you've given to us so that we might be more effective in our service. 
Help us to find our way in servanthood. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.